Good morning, uh, everybody. It is the Lord's Day, and uh, we are doing our best to make much of it by uh, sitting under teaching together in these uh, continually extraordinary circumstances. It is graduation season, and so to all of you high school and college and higher level graduates, including our own Dr. Ireland, congratulations. Uh, I am sorry that your last year got hijacked by COVID-19. My daughter lined up Thursday at her high school at her appointed time with less than 10 of her classmates, each of them six feet apart. They received a diploma from a principal who kept her distance while all of it was being recorded on video so it could be shown virtually later this week. Welcome to 2020. And all of this talk about graduation leads me to an observation. So much of our success depends on others. Graduates certainly worked hard, but their parents had a lot to do with it. Our kids didn't contribute to their birth. They just sort of showed up. They didn't add a ton of value to those infant and toddler years. Yes, they were very cute, but they were also fussy and not a little messy. They spit up, they needed diapers, and they probably would have been electrocuted or run over by a car had it not been for a parent watching carefully. Now, it sounds like I'm saying that I deserve a diploma for my daughter's graduation. Rachel, I'm not saying that. No, I'm just suggesting that if you double-click on any of these diplomas, a window filled with the faces of others will pop up. An army of grandparents and parents and friends and family and church members, maybe even husbands and wives standing by your side as you worked hard to get your degree. Without the help of others, graduation day may never have arrived. Now, let's think about another day. An even better day, the day of the Lord. When you finally receive the diploma of your salvation, who will get the credit? When you double click on that diploma, what's going to pop up in that window? Not your face, and not the face of your pastors, not the face of your fellow church members or friends or family. No, three names will pop up in that window, the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Why? Because on the day of the Lord, you will have nothing to boast in except for the work of God for you and in you and through you. Now, even as I share this message, I know that you have a lot on your minds. Everything is a little different right now, isn't it? No hugs, keeping our distance, shaky economy. We're all a little unsure of how long this will last, but we don't lose heart. Christians are taught to stare right into the eye of the hurricane, or in this case, into the eye of the virus, and ask, how can I grow? How can I grow as a Christian? What needs to change in my life? Picture your life like a big spiritual house, and in it are many rooms, and each room represents uh, one aspect, one feature of your Christian life. And for revival to come, you've got to do more than simply poke your head in the door and, and look around from there. You've got to get into the room. You've got to shake things up. And today, the room that I want to explore with you is a room with the words of Ephesians 1, 6 emblazoned on the threshold to the praise of his glorious grace. For revival to come, our prayer must be that God would be praised because of his glorious grace. Grace has been called the key word of the Bible. It may be the most important word in all the world. It may be the most, the least, understood word in all the world. And so this morning, I want to do three things. I want to define the word. Second, I want to show you God's grace, both in the planning and the purchasing of our salvation 
I'm really defending the definition that I'm going to give you in that second point. And then lastly, I want to end our time with a few words of application. Now, before we define grace, let's agree that grace is God's to give. Grace is God's to give. It's crucial that we know that grace is his gift to us. The Greek word is charis. It's found especially in Paul's letters. It's often translated gift. With only a few exceptions, every New Testament letter begins with a prayer for grace to come upon the readers. So what is grace? Well, grace is the favor God freely shows to undeserving sinners. When the authors begin their New Testament letters by saying grace to you, they are praying that each reader would experience the favor that God has shown them now and for all time. Now, God's people have always been dependent upon God's grace. This is nothing new in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. Those who were saved knew that it was God's doing. Right? They relied on God's strength. They relied on God's power. They relied upon God's promises. So even David, when he went up against Goliath, he knew that the Lord was his strength. Right? Not, not his slingshot, but the Lord. David said to that giant, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Right? God was David's only hope. God, entirely God. And that is grace. Now, notice that I say that, that grace is the favor God freely shows undeserving sinners. I use those words freely and undeserving for a reason. Right? I want you to understand that God is under no obligation to be gracious to us. He would not be less God or less praiseworthy or less good if he chose to withhold his grace and his mercy. Listen to how Pastor Robert Pattison described God's grace long ago. He begins with a question. What moved God to such acts of grace? Thinking about the, the, the grace God has shown us in saving us. He says, what moved God? to such acts of grace? Why did God purpose in Christ and in the fullness of time to execute his purpose, to bless us with spiritual blessings? There was no necessity in his case. It was a free, voluntary act. He was coerced by no foreign power, nor was he morally urged by a sense of justice. God purposed in himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Last week when I said that it comes to God's holiness, it's not helpful to start with us and reason up to God. That may work sometimes, but it won't work all the time. As parents, Dean and I are, are obligated to show favor to our children. Now, of course, we want to do this. We desire to do this. We love to do this. We count it a privilege, but it is also a responsibility. We are their parents. Generosity toward our children is not optional. We should not, though, conclude that God is obligated to be generous to everyone that he has made. He is not. He is neither responsible nor required to show favor to his creatures. Again, grace is favor God freely shows to undeserving sinners. That's the definition. Let's move on to our second point. Let's see how God's grace shows up in the planning and in the purchasing of our salvation. God is gracious in the planning of our salvation. Notice how Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, 
what stands out in that passage by far for us in this age, in our generation, are those words, he chose us in verse four and he predestined us in verse five. Statements like that rock our world. We immediately object. We wanna raise up our hand and assert the role that we played in our salvation. Right, if you were giving a graduation speech and your dad knocked you off of the pedestal and said, hey, this was all my plan. Well, you'd be offended. It's, it, it's easy, even for Christians, to be offended by this idea of predestination. Now, of course, we do play a role in our salvation. When we hear the gospel, we really must respond. Every individual must respond to this gospel message. We are really obligated to respond, but without getting into the nitty gritty details of our role and God's role in salvation, let's simply appreciate what Paul is saying and why he is saying it. You see, there was a time when only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existed. There's a movie, an old movie, I think, called The Land Before Time. Well, Paul is talking about God before time, before the foundation of the world was God. Before anything existed, God existed. He existed perfectly. He was always joyful. Uh, he was always content. He always needed nothing. God has always known perfect peace and love and joy within himself, within his triune self. This is hard to understand, and that's okay. We aren't God. We don't have to understand the ins and the outs of it. Even if he explained it to us, I think we would have a hard time understanding it. It'd be a, a little bit like an ant trying to understand quantum physics. Before we existed, God existed. And, and God wasn't pining away for you. It's going to be hard for a lot of us to appreciate. But before we existed, God wasn't pining away for us. He wasn't missing us or feeling like somehow our existence would make his existence better. He wasn't looking for you to complete him. No, God is holy, as we thought about last week, which is to say that he is absolutely happy and satisfied in himself. And yet... And this is Ephesians 1, and yet, before God created a single atom, God chose you. I'm talking to Christians now, of course. Before God made even one molecule, God predestined you to be adopted into his family, to share in his joy. He purposed this would happen. He willed this would happen. He planned for this to happen. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would the holy and happy triune God choose a people for himself because he had to? No, I'm trying to make it very clear that he didn't have to. It wasn't like God was wearing one of those necklaces with half a heart and he needed you with the other half to make him somehow whole. So why then? Well, it's at the end of verse four that we find the answer. It was in love. That's the only explanation we're given. God chose us because he loved us before the foundation of the world. Before there was even us, God loved us. This is hard for people to hear because uh, most of us, I think all of us, come to God with certain preconceived notions about who God is or about what God should be like. But in Ephesians, Paul wants you to know that God was like a love bomb set to explode and create a people. And, and not because he had to, but because he wanted to. In love, God chose to populate a world with human beings to perfectly bear his image and his likeness. And that, my friends, is what Paul calls grace. Now, I know this raises a ton of questions, good questions, questions like, how is it that it can be called loving for God to create a people that he knew would rebel against him? Or how is it kind 
to create a people that God knew he would one day condemn? Those are real questions, and they deserve lengthy, heartfelt responses. But providing answers to those questions is not Paul's goal here. Instead, right off the bat, Paul simply wants you to know that God is gracious in the planning of your salvation. He is loving in the purposing of your redemption. He is merciful in the preparation of your new birth. Before we would question God, Paul would have us praise God. Look at verse 6. All this took place to the praise of his glorious grace. And our jaws are supposed to fall to the floor when it sinks in that God who owes us nothing, not one breath, not one grace, he, this God, has chosen He has planned for untold numbers to experience his glorious grace. And our response is to sing prayerfully with hearts of joy to the praise of his glorious grace. If someone shows you a surprise party, throws you a surprise party, the moment people scream, surprise, well, you're thrilled. Hopefully you're surprised and immediately you're thrilled. At that moment, you recognize they've come for you. They've come to celebrate you. They've come to enjoy you. They've come to serve you. And inevitably, the next question is something like, well, how long have you been planning this? And if the host says, well, actually, we weren't planning it at all. We just heard you were going to be here. We were all in the neighborhood. So we thought, why not? Well, if that was someone's explanation of your surprise party, I think it would take a little bit of the joy out of it. But when you discover that they've been planning it for months, that they've been sending out emails and keeping it from you and making sure everyone could be in town just for you, well, then you're experiencing the favor they're showing you in the planning of this great day. There is love in the preparation. And the same is true with God's grace. Right? He planned before you were ever born to freely show you his favor. An undeserving sinner like you. There is grace in the planning of our salvation, but there is also grace in the purchasing of our salvation. We can't think rightly about grace until we understand that it is freely given, but It is freely given to undeserving sinners. Now, at this point, Paul brings great clarity in Ephesians chapter 2. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, listen again to Paul who writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, admittedly, these are some of the grimmest and darkest verses in the entire Bible. Here are the facts. God made each and every one of us And each and every one of us rebelled against him. Each and every one of us rebel against him. And in fact, we are born, we are born rebellious, natural born sinners. We were born with hearts disposed to sin, inclined to sin. We were born with hearts that naturally go away from and against the God who made us. You see, when Adam ate the fruit, he sunk the ship for all of us. All of his descendants, and that's humanity, all of Adam's descendants are born with this same rotten inclination to sin, an inclination that inevitably shows itself 
in our lives as soon as possible. Now, if there were one Christian doctrine that I really don't have to prove, it's this one, the utter sinfulness, the total depravity of all mankind. So for some of you who are old enough to know this, pretend for a moment that you are Marvel's Ant-Man. And you can adjust your uniform to make it really, really large. So now you're so big that with one glance, you can see the happenings of an entire city. What would you see? Depending on the city you're in, you would see violence, terror, maybe even war. Looking out over perhaps millions of people, you would see people doing awful things to one another, things so grotesque they would keep you awake at night if you had that kind of vision to see the landscape, perhaps of the entire world. You know, you would see that the world is a mess. It's not what it should be. People are not treating one another the way they ought to treat one another. And it's not because of a virus, right? It's because of sin. Now, you're still Ant-Man, but you toggle with your uniform, and now you become tiny, super tiny, so tiny that you can somehow hop into the human heart. What would you see then? Well, you know the answer, right? You would see this sin that everyone hides. The envy, the discontent, the pride, the lust, the laziness, it's all in there. Whatever view you take, right? The 30,000 view or right inside your own heart, wherever you're looking, you're going to see the sin. And honestly, you don't even have to be a Christian to know this. The, the great 20th century writer Albert Camus, who died at the young age of 47 of a car accident, three years before he died, he penned his last little novel, and he called it The Fall. And Camus, who was not a Christian, was a great student of humanity and a great student of himself. And he knew that this world is rotten. And Camus knew that his own heart is rotten as well. And though Camus had no love for the Bible and outright rejected it, nonetheless, he embraced the heinousness of the human heart writ large over the entire world. And here he describes himself and us as, as hypocrites, as individuals who declare themselves good, but in reality go around doing bad. He even said that it's so bad that the last judgment, it's as if the last judgment is taking place every day as he looks at the horror and the travesty and the wreckage human beings have made of this world. So again, whether it's the sin of the city or the sin within our own hearts, our sins may not capture the headlines, but they are real. Our sin is real, and it's why none of us can honestly argue with Ephesians 2, 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And what do we deserve for this rebellion? Well, Paul tells us, he says, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's how we came into this world, spiritually dead, unable to love God, unable to serve him. But that's not all. It gets worse. Look how verse 3 ends. We were children of wrath. Children of wrath. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. Wrath is God's response to rebellion. Wrath is what we deserve. If I came home one day and saw one of my kids pounding the other, well, I'd be angry. My, my just response to that sin would be my wrath. Punishment for the pounder would be right around the corner. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. It's not hard to understand. Because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. You think the coronavirus is bad? That's nothing compared to what we really deserve. When the full fury of God's wrath falls on a sinner, there's no hope. 
There's no refuge. There's no peace. There's only endless animosity between man and God and endless separation between man and God. It is the horror of horrors to be made by God and yet to rebel against God. And there is nothing, 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 nothing worse than being a child of wrath. And that's what we deserve. And it's terrible, terrible, terrible news. Now, why have I spent so long delivering this terrible news, describing our terrible condition. Why? So that grace can be grace. So that we can appreciate God's favor freely given to absolutely undeserving sinners. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, but God intervened, but God remembered his plan, but God didn't leave me in my sin, but God made a way out, but God removed his wrath, but God made us alive. How did God do this? Well, he purchased his people with the blood of Christ. The wrath of God fell on Jesus, Christian, instead of on you. And this is grace, right? By grace, you have been saved. Some of you might be thinking, well, this is really great. Why, why does Paul hold off all the way to chapter 2 to make this so clear? Well, he didn't. You just missed it in chapter 1. Look there again. Look at verse 3. How are we blessed? We are blessed in Christ. Right? That is to say that we are blessed when Christ died in our place and rose from the dead for our salvation. That's our hope. That's our blessing. There's no hope. There's no blessing outside of Christ. Look at verse 4. God chose us in him. Right? That is, God chose us in Christ. The cross has always been God's plan. Christ dying in our place is the way God chose to demonstrate his grace. The triune God has always, as if I can use the word always, before there was time. I don't know what else to say. God's triune plan has always been to, to punish Jesus for the rebellion of his chosen people. Look at verse 5. How does our adoption come? It comes through Jesus Christ. God graciously makes us a part of his family, so we are no longer children of wrath, but we are now his chosen, precious children. How does this happen? Paul is clear. It happens through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. Look at verse 6. How have we been blessed? We have been blessed in the beloved. Who is the beloved? It's Christ. This is my beloved son, the father said at his baptism. This is the son loved by God the father. And so when God blesses us, he blesses us in his beloved. In other words, God the father gives us the love God the son so righteously deserves. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There it is in black and in white and in bloody red. It is the blood of Christ that saves us. That has always been God's purpose. That's what I'm wanting you to see. It's always been God's purpose. It's always been God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to purchase our salvation. That's grace. God's favor freely given to undeserving sinners. You may know that about 10 years ago, my family became a foster family. We don't think that everyone needs to foster or adopt. But after much prayer and consideration, Dean and I believe that this was the right course for our family. And nothing could have prepared us for that great day when a little girl came into our lives 
we knew that our job was to give her a home, a loving home for a day or a month or however long she needed one. That was our job as foster parents. And as the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years, it became clear that she needed a, a permanent home and God saw fit to add her to our family. Dina became her mom and I became her dad. Our kids became her siblings. The day we adopted her in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of the government, it was as if she had been born to us. We didn't have to adopt her. There was no requirement, no obligation, but there was love and there was grace. Christian, God didn't have to adopt you. He didn't have to purchase you with the blood of Christ, but he did. And now in the eyes of God, it's as if you have always been his child. Christian, when he looks at you, he sees you as redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, holy son or daughter of himself. He loves you with the same love he has for his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is grace. When God saved you, he adopted you, you are fully and forever his. And this is what God planned before the foundation of the world. And this is what God purchased. I say grace is God's favor freely given. Of course, you know I mean free for us not free for him. It cost him this, the blood of Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. And this leads us to our application. What do we do with this? I don't want these words to just fill your head. I think for some of you, maybe many of you, maybe most of you, everything that I've said this morning has, has been by way of reminder, sort of a, a passionate plea for you to remember what you already know. I don't want these words that I'm, I'm speaking to simply fill your head, but I want them to fill your heart. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And so my, 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 my biblical conviction is that the, the, this word of grace, properly understood, is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to strengthen you, right, to encourage you to prepare you for the days ahead. This is actually God's plan for encouragement in your life, this word of, of grace. So that's what I want for you today. I want your heart to be strengthened by grace. I want you to want grace more than you want food. I want you to want grace more than you want the world to get back to normal. I want you to want grace more even than you want the church to gather again. I want you to want grace. And if Mount Vernon is going to experience any kind of genuine revival, then we have to grow in awe of God's mercy and compassion and, yes, his grace. Let's face it, the coronavirus has us all a little bit shaken up. None of us knows exactly what the future holds. We're all concerned about outbreaks and stock markets and jobs, and we're concerned about our own future, and I want us to find a way to lean into the grace of God. That's how God designed us to be strengthened. If you have no room for grace in your life, then you can welcome weakness into your life, because without grace, there is great weakness, and with grace, there is great strength. So let me leave you with three words of application. First, Enjoy the abundance of God's grace. Now, I'm speaking to the Christian. I'm speaking to those of you who have humbled yourselves and received what God has freely offered in Christ. And if that's you, enjoy the abundance of God's grace. It's easy to get lost in this doctrine. It's easy to get hijacked by theological questions. But Paul's teaching here in Ephesians is supposed to make us feel a little bit like being a kid at the entrance of a toy store with a big shopping cart and told he can put anything in the cart he wants. 
Look again at verse 3. How have we been blessed? Paul says, with every spiritual blessing. God is no Grinch. God withholds nothing we need for our joy, for our happiness. God has given us every spiritual blessing. A man by the name of Jupiter Hammond was one of the greatest early American writers. He was also a slave in New England in the 1700s. He hated slavery. He knew it was wrong. He wanted out. But no matter how hard his life was, he knew what it meant as a Christian to enjoy every spiritual blessing from the Lord. And he urged others to do the same. Listen to what he once wrote. Most of us are cut off from comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now, seeing this is the case, why should we not take care to be happy after death? Riches and honors which drown the greatest part of mankind can be little or no temptation to us. What is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared to eternity? When thousands and millions of years have rolled away, this eternity will no nigher coming to an end. Oh, how glorious is an eternal life of happiness. Right, in, in a world filled with cruelty and pain, Jupiter Hammond came to enjoy every spiritual blessing in such a way that he got, he got to see God's hand providing him everything he needed to enjoy a life of eternal happiness. What God provides us in Christ is far better than anything the world takes away. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace, grace that he lavished upon us. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. What did Paul preach? He preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does unsearchable mean except that you can take a lifetime exploring them and never find them all, never exhaust them all, never truly and fully understand them? Maybe you can recall being a child and being given a gift. Maybe you are a child and you can recall this. Some gifts you open up and you play with them for a day or two and then you lose interest in them like that little bird that you wait to crack out of the egg and then it twerps for like three days, never to be seen again. But there are other gifts that seem to last forever. Maybe it was a Lego set that took days and days to put together. Maybe it was a video game that took months before you found all the secret levels. Maybe it was simply a ball. A ball that you could take anywhere and everywhere and enjoy and never got old. The, the point is some gifts, some gifts are made to last. Grace is like that. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I, I hope you agree with Jupiter Hammond. We are going to spend ages and ages and ages in the presence of God and never get to the bottom of his glory. That's grace. The point is here is that we are called to enjoy the abundance of God's grace. We are called as a church to pray and to sing to the praise of his glorious grace. And believe me, there is something haunting about making that statement as I'm staring at an empty room right now. And yet God's grace has not been hijacked by COVID-19. Enjoy the abundance of God's grace wherever you are. All right, second, let's, let's pursue the holiness of his grace. Let's pursue the holiness of his grace. I'm not going to spend as much time on this point. I spoke a lot about holiness last week. I simply want to acknowledge that I know your temptation because I share your temptation. We're all tempted to wonder why we must be holy if God is so gracious. If God has already planned and purchased my salvation, and we may not put it into words, 
But we think about it, especially when we're really struggling, especially when we're really tempted to sin, especially when we're on the cusp of giving in, we think to ourselves, I know God's going to forgive me. He's gracious after all. But here's what I want you to understand. When you truly lean into God's grace, you will inevitably lean into God's holiness. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 again. Why did God choose us? Why did he plan our salvation? There's a reason that we should be holy and blameless before him. Yes, holy and blameless on that last day when we are finally glorified and all sin is rooted out of our lives. But even now, living the Christian life in the pursuit of holiness, we recognize that the purpose of our election has been our sanctification, our growth in holiness, and our ultimate glorification. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul states, we are his, God's, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might ask, well, how committed is God to my holiness? Just how committed is God to my holiness? God is so committed to your holiness that he did not merely plan out your salvation, but he planned out your sanctification as well. Do not assume that God is at work in you if you are not at work for God. He has ordained good works for us to do. So far, I've told you to enjoy the abundance of God's grace. I've urged you to pursue the, the holiness of God's grace. Just one more word of application. Third, rest. Rest in the security of God's grace. I began the message talking about graduates. Receiving a, a diploma can be such a relief, but it can also be a lot of pressure. The diploma says you accomplished something. You fulfilled the necessary requirements. You, you passed. And so many graduates, they get that diploma, and they go through life trying to prove that the graduating institution didn't make a mistake. We go through life trying to prove that we deserve what we received, trying to earn the next diploma, or the next job, or the next promotion, or simply the next pat on the back. And grace says it's not about you, and it's not about what you earned, and it's not about what you owe. Grace says you've got nothing left to prove. Grace says when you double-click on the diploma of your salvation, your name won't pop up. You'll see the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they'll somehow be surrounding a bloody cross. C.H. Spurgeon tells a great story in a book he wrote about a widow uh, upon whose door he came knocking one day because he had a little bit of extra money that he wanted to give her in her hour of need. And so he goes to her door and he's, he's knocking on the door and nobody answers. And he thinks that's strange. He thinks she should be home, but what to do? So he goes back to his church building and eventually it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day where Christians gather together. That's what we do on the Lord's Day. We gather together. Unless there's a global pandemic, we gather together. Well, that day that they gathered together, Spurgeon saw this widow and he said, you know, where were you? I came knocking at your door. She said, well, I was home. I heard someone knocking at my door, but I thought it was a landlord asking for rent and I had no money to give him. And Spurgeon said, I don't want your rent. I have something to give you. And Spurgeon wrote to his audience in that book, when it comes to salvation, God wants nothing from you and has everything to give you. You have nothing to give God for your salvation, except your sin, of course. You have finally nothing to do ultimately, but to rest in who God is and in what he's done. And so your life may be shaken up by COVID-19, your paycheck, your plans, your job, your health, your future may all be up in the air, but nothing can shake you from the most important blessing 
the blessing given by a God who asks nothing from you and has everything for you. Your standing in Christ, your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, your seat at the table of the family of God, this is not the result of your works. It's not because you had the rent to pay. You don't have to prove yourself. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is why all of your life is to be lived, not to your own praise, but to the praise of God's glorious grace. Now, I know that not, I have really no idea who's watching this, which is very unnerving. I just don't know who you are. I trust that so much of my Mount Vernon family, that brothers and sisters, you're watching, and I'm so thankful for that. I, I, I know it's, for those of you with young kids, I know that's not easy. Uh, so there's, there's grace. Uh, for, for all of us, just, you know, hearing, I mean, TVs are great, but they're, they're not really meant for the preaching event. It's not how God designed us. It's not how God made us. But I know a lot of you watching are my church family. And so I, I wanted to give you a word of encouragement. I wanted to strengthen you with this word of grace. Uh, perhaps to use this time of uh, quarantine, which is slowly unraveling, but just to make sure we use this time to shore up our faith in some very key areas. And what's more key than the doctrine of grace? And so that's been my heartbeat behind this message for you, believer, is that you might be strengthened by the grace of God. But I recognize that there are individuals watching, maybe it's a, a child Maybe it's a teenager. Maybe you're the, the, the child, the, practically the adult child of a member of, of the church. I'm so privileged to pastor. Maybe you just somehow got this link, and I have no idea how, but here you are, not a believer, tuning in to hear about grace. And if that's you, you, you need to understand that the Bible teaches, and I, I hope I've, I've, I've made it very clear to you already, the Bible teaches that we are born children of wrath. I know everything around you tells you that you're basically a good person and everything's going to be okay in the long run. I see little signs uh, driving through my neighborhood. They're little black and white signs. They read, everything will be okay. And I appreciate the sentiment. You know, I don't think coronavirus is going to knock us down forever. But like biblically speaking, the only way everything's going to be okay is if you rest in God's grace. That's, that's the only way everything is going to be okay for you. So I, I exhort you, my unbelieving friend, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he really is not merely the best man who ever lived, which I would say many even non-Christians would agree with that, but to believe that he is God-man to believe that he is not merely fully man, but that he is in fact fully God. And being fully God, he was able to do that which no one else could do, to die in the place of natural born sinners like you and like me. And so to become a Christian, you don't need to pull out your paycheck. You don't need to start making a list of all the things you have to do you need to ask yourself the question, did Jesus really pay it all? Did he really die on the cross for sinners like me? Did he really demonstrate that he has the power of God by rising from the dead to secure the salvation of everyone who would give up everything and trust in him? My plea for you is to not let this unique season of COVID-19 to in any way pass you by without your life changing. People are asking, when are we gonna to get to the new normal? If you're not a believer, I don't want you ever to get to the new normal. I want you to be saved, not by your own works, because then you'd boast. 
then you just be go looking for the next accomplishment. I don't want that for you. I want you to live this very strange life where you, you wake up in the morning and you recognize, I don't have to prove myself, but oh, how I want to serve my Savior. It, it, it's, a, it's a strange, wonderful, mysterious, beautiful, challenging way to live. To go to bed every night going, wow, I, I sinned today and I hate that I sinned. And God, I confess my sin to you, and all I have is you. This is grace. It's God's favor. He freely shows to undeserving sinners like you and like me. So before I pray, I'd like you to take a moment now to reflect on the grace of God in, in your life if you are a Christian. And certainly my brothers and sisters, members of Mount Vernon, I'd like you to spend just a moment, if you can, in the quietness or noisiness of your home to reflect on the grace of God in your own life. And then if you're not a believer, I want to invite you to pray that all your reservations would melt away and that you would receive what God so freely offers, which, by the way, is everything. All right, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many things about you that we struggle to understand, so many questions about your ways that boggle our minds. But Father, we ask you to protect us from the pride of thinking that we can fully understand you and help us to receive what you freely give, which is salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we pray that as a scattered church, we would enjoy every spiritual blessing, even as the particular blessing of the local church gathering has for this season been removed from our lives. But you are still God and you are still good. And we pray that you would help us to enjoy the abundance of your grace. Father, we ask you to help us to lean into grace that we might walk in holiness. And we pray that you would help us to die to the temptation to prove ourselves as if our salvation depended upon how good or smart we are, because it's not. It's dependent upon your will and upon your love and upon Christ's cross. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.